Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to David's Book of Bedtime. Tonight, we're diving right back into A Study in Scarlet. So relax, enjoy, and without further ado, let's begin. Chapter 6. Tobias Gregson Shows What He Can Do The papers next day were full of the Brixton mystery, as they termed it. Each had a long account of the affair, and some had leaders upon its addition. There was some information in them which was new to me. I still retain in my scrapbook numerous clippings and extracts bearing upon the case. Here is a condensation of a few of them. The Daily Telegraph remarked, that in the history of crime there had seldom been a tragedy which presented stranger features. The German name of the victim, the absence of all other motive, and the sinister inscription on the wall, all pointed to its perpetration by political refugees and revolutionists. The socialists had many branches in America, and the deceased had no doubt infringed their unwritten laws and had been tracked down by them. After alluding airily to the Vemgericht, Aquatofna, Carbonari, the Marchioness de Brinvilliers, the Darwinian theory, the principles of Malthus, and the Ratcliffe Highway murders, the article concluded by admonishing the government and advocating a closer watch over foreigners in England. The Standard commented upon the fact that lawless outrages of the sort usually occurred under a liberal administration. They arose from the unsettling of the minds of the masses and the consequent weakening of all authority. The deceased was an American gentleman who had been residing for some weeks in the metropolis. He had stayed at the boarding house of Madame Charpentier in the Torquay Terrace, Camberwell. He was accompanied in his travels by his private secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson. The two bade adieu to their landlay upon Tuesday the 4th and departed to Euston Station with the avowed intention of catching the Liverpool Express. They were afterwards seen together upon the platform. Nothing more is known of them until Mr. Drebber's body was, as recorded, discovered in an empty house in the Brixton Road, many miles from Euston. How he came there, or how he met his fate, are questions which are still involved in mystery. Nothing is known of the whereabouts of Stangerson. We are glad to learn that Mr. Lestrade and Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard are both engaged upon the case, and it is confidently anticipated that these well-known officers will speedily throw light upon the matter. The Daily News observed that there was no doubt as to the crime being a political one. The despotism and hatred of liberalism, which animated the continental government, had the effect of driving to our shores a number of men who might have made excellent citizens were they not scoured by the recollection of all they had undergone. Among these men, there was a stringent code of honour, any infringement of which was punished by death. Every effort should be made to find the secretary, Stangerson, and to ascertain some particulars of the habits of the deceased. A great step had been gained by the discovery of the address of the house at which he had boarded, a result which was entirely due to the acuteness and energy of Mr. Gregson of Scotland Yard. Sherlock Holmes and I read these notices over together at breakfast, and they appeared to afford him considerable amusement. I told you that, whatever happened, Lestrade and Gregson would be sure to score. Well, that depends on how it turns out. Oh, bless you, it doesn't matter in the least. 
If the man is caught, it will be on account of their exertions. If he escapes, it will be in spite of their exertions. It's heads I win and tails you lose. Whatever they do, they will have followers. Un saut trouve toujours un plus saut qu'il admire. What on earth is this? I cried. For this moment there came the pattering of many steps in the hall and on the stairs, accompanied by the audible expressions of disgust upon the part of our landlady. It's the Baker Street division of the detective police force, said my companion gravely. And as he spoke, there rushed into the room half a dozen of the dirtiest and most ragged street Arabs that ever I clapped eyes on. Tentian, cried Holmes in a sharp tone, and the six dirty little scoundrels stood in a line like so many disreputable statuettes. In future you shall send up Wiggins alone to report, and the rest of you must wait in the street. Have you found it, Wiggins? No, sir, we ain't, said one of the youths. I hardly expect you would. You must keep on until you do. Here are your wages. He handed each of them a shilling. Now if you go and come back with a better report next time. He waved his hand, and then they scampered away downstairs like so many rats, and we heard their shrill little voices next moment in the street. There's more work to be got out of one of those little beggars than half a dozen of the force, Holmes remarked. The mere sight of an official-looking person seals men's lips. These youngsters, however, go everywhere and hear everything. They are as sharp as needles, too. All they want is organisation. Is it on this Brixton case that you are employing them? I asked. Yes, there is a point which I wish to ascertain. It is merely a matter of time. Hello. We are going to hear some news now with a vengeance. Here is Gregson coming down the road, with betitude written upon every feature of his face. Bound for us, I know. Yes, he's stopping. There he is. There was a violent peal of the bell, and in a few seconds the fair-haired detective came up the stairs, three steps at a time, and burst into our sitting-room. My dear fellow, he cried, wringing Holmes's unresponsive hand, congratulate me. I have made the whole thing as clear as day. A shade of anxiety seemed to me to cross my companion's expressive face. Do you mean that you're on the right track, he asked? The right track? Why, sir, we have the man under lock and key. And his name is? Arthur Sharpenter, sub-lieutenant in Her Majesty's Navy, cried Gregson, pompously rubbing his fat hands and inflating his chest. Sherlock Holmes gave a sigh of relief and relaxed into a smile. Take a seat and try one of these cigars, he said. We are anxious to know how you managed it. Will you have some whiskey and water? I don't mind if I do, the detective answered. The tremendous exertions which I have gone through during the last day or two have worn me out. Not so much bodily exertion, you understand, as the strain upon the mind. You will appreciate that, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, for we are both brain workers. You do me too much honour, said Holmes gravely. Let us hear how you arrived at this most gratifying result. The detective seated himself in the armchair and puffed complacently at his cigar. Then suddenly he slapped his thigh in a paroxysm of amusement. The fun of it is, he cried, that the fool Lestrade, who thinks himself so smart, has gone off the wrong track altogether. He's after the secretary Stangerson, who had no more to do with the crime than the babe unborn. I have no doubt that he has caught him by this time. The idea tickled Gregson so much that he laughed until he choked. And how did you get your clue? Ah, I'll tell you about it. Of course, Dr. Watson. This is strictly between ourselves. The first difficulty which we had to contend with was the finding of this American's antecedents. Some people would have waited until their advertisements were answered, or until parties came forward and volunteered information. 
That is not Tobias's Gregson's way of going to work. You remember the hat beside the dead man? Yes, said Holmes, by John Underwood and Sons, 192 Camberwell Road. Gregson looked quite crestfallen. I had no idea you noticed that, he said. Have you been there? No. Ha! cried Gregson in a relieved voice. You should never neglect a chance, however small it may seem. To a great mind, nothing is little, remarked Holmes, sentiously. Well, I went to Underwood and asked him if he had sold a hat of that size and description. He looked over his books and came on it at once. He had sent the hat to a Mr. Drebber residing at Charpentier's boarding establishment, Torquay Terrace. Thus, I got his address. Smart, very smart, murmured Sherlock Holmes. I next called upon Madame Charpentier, continued the detective. I found her very pale and distressed. Her daughter was in the room too, an uncommonly fine girl she is too. She was looking red about the eyes, and her lips trembled as I spoke to her. That didn't escape my notice. I began to smell a rat. You know the feeling, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, when you come upon the right scent. A kind of thrill in your nerves. Have you ever heard of the mysterious death of your late boarder, Mr. Enoch J. Drebber of Cleveland, I asked. The mother nodded. She didn't seem able to get out a word. The daughter burst into tears. I felt more than ever these people knew something of the matter. And what o'clock did Mr. Drebber leave your house for the train? I asked. At eight o'clock, she said, gulping in her throat to keep down her agitation. And was that the last of which you saw of him? A terrible change came over the woman's face as I asked the question. Her features turned perfectly livid. It was some seconds before she could get out a single word. Yes. And when it did come out, it was in a husky, unnatural tone. There was silence for a moment, and then the daughter spoke in a calm, clear voice. No good can ever come of falsehood, mother, she said. Let us be frank with this gentleman. We did see Mr. Drebber again. God forgive you, cried Madame Charpentier, throwing up her hands and sinking back in her chair. You have murdered your brother. Arthur would rather that we spoke the truth, the girl answered firmly. You had best tell me all about it now, I said. Half confidences are worse than none. Besides, you do not know how much we know of it. On your head be it, Alice, cried her mother, and then, turning to me, I will tell you all, sir. Do not imagine that my agitation on behalf of my son arises from any fear, lest he should have had a hand in this terrible affair. He is utterly innocent of it. My dread is, however, that in your eyes and the eyes of other, he may appear to be compromised. That, however, is surely impossible. His high character, his profession, his antecedents would all forbid it. Your best way is to make a clean breast of the facts, I answered. Depend upon it. If your son is innocent, he will be none the worse. Perhaps, Alice, you had better leave us together, she said, and her daughter withdrew. Now, sir, she continued, I had no intention of telling you all this, but since my poor daughter has disclosed it, I have no alternative. Having once decided to speak, I will tell you all without omitting any particular. It's your wisest course, said I. Mr. Trevor has been with us nearly three weeks. He and his secretary, Mr. Stangerson, have been travelling on the continent. I noticed a Copenhagen label upon each of their trunks, showing that that had been their last stopping place. Stangerson was a quiet, reserved man, but his employer, I'm sorry to say, was far otherwise. He was coarse in his habits and brutish in his ways. The very night of his arrival, he became very much the worse for drink, and indeed, after twelve o'clock in the day, he could hardly ever said to be sober. 
His manners towards the maidservants were disgustingly free and familiar. Worst of all, he speedily assumed the same attitude towards my daughter, Alice, and spoke to her more than once in a way which fortunately she is too innocent to understand. On one occasion he actually seized her in his arms and embraced her, an outrage which caused his own secretary to reproach him for his unmanly conduct. But why did you stand all this? I asked. I suppose that you can get rid of your borders when you wish. Mrs. Charpentier blushed at my pertinent question. Would to God that I had given him notice, on the very day that he came. But it was a sore temptation. They were paying a pound a day, each. Fourteen pounds a week. And this is my slack season. I am a widow, and my boy in the navy has cost me much. I grudged to lose the money. I acted for the best. This last was too much, however, and I gave him notice to leave on account of it. That was the reason of his going. Well? My heart grew light when I saw him drive away. My son is on leave just now, but I did not tell him anything of this, for his temper is violent, and he is passionately fond of his sister. When I closed the door behind them, a load seemed to be lifted off my mind. Alas, in less than an hour there was a ring at the bell, and I learned that Mr. Drebber had returned. He was much excited, and evidently worse for drink. He forced his way into the room where I was sitting with my daughter, and made some incoherent remark about having missed his train. He then turned to Alice, and before my very face proposed to her that she should fly with him. You are of age, he said, and there is no law to stop you. I have money enough, and to spare. Never mind the old girl here, but you shall come along with me now, straight away. You shall live like a princess. Poor Alice was so frightened that she shrunk away from him, but he caught her by the wrist and endeavoured to draw her towards the door. I screamed, and at that moment my son Arthur came into the room. What happened then I do not know. I heard oaths and the confused sound of a scuffle. I was too terrified to raise my head. When I did look up, I saw Arthur standing in the doorway laughing, with a stick in his hand. I don't think that that fine fellow will trouble us again, he said. I will just go after him and see what he does with himself. With those words, he took his hat and started off down the street. The next morning we heard of Mr. Drebber's mysterious death. This statement came from Miss Charpentier's lips, with many gasps and pauses. At times she spoke so low that I could hardly catch the words. I made shorthand notes of all she said, however, so there could be no possibility of a mistake. It's quite exciting, said Sherlock Holmes with a yawn. What happened next? When Miss Charpentier paused, the detective continued. I saw the whole case hung upon one point. Fixing her with my eye, in which I always found effective with women, I asked her at what hour her son returned. I do not know, she answered. Not know? No, he has a latchkey, and he let himself in. After you went to bed? Yes. When did you go to bed? About eleven. So your son was gone at least two hours? Yes. Possibly four or five? Yes. And what was he doing during that time? I do not know, she answered, turning white to her very lips. Of course, after there was nothing more to be done, I found out where Lieutenant Charpentier was, took two officers with me, and arrested him. When I touched him on the shoulder and warned him to come with us, he answered us as bold as brass. I suppose you are arresting me for the concern in the death of that scoundrel Drebber, he said. We had said nothing to him about it, so that his alluding to it had a most suspicious aspect. He still carried the heavy stick, which the mother described him as having when he, he followed Drebber. It was a stout oak cudgel. What's your theory, then? 
My theory is that he followed Drebber as far as the Brixton Road, when there a fresh altercation arose between them, in the course of which Drebber received a blow from the stick, in the pit of the stomach perhaps, which killed him without leaving a mark. The night was so wet that nobody was about, so Charpentier dragged the body of his victim into the empty house, as to the candle and the blood and the writing on the wall and the ring. They may all be so many tricks to throw the police onto the wrong scent. Well done, said Holmes in an encouraging voice. Really, Gregson, you are getting along. We shall make something of you yet. I flatter myself that I have managed it rather neatly, the detective answered proudly. The young man volunteered a statement in which he said that after following Drebber for some time, the latter perceived him and took a cab in order to get away from him. On his way home, he met an old shipmate and took a long walk with him. On being asked where this old shipmate lived, he was unable to give any satisfactory reply. I think the whole case fits together uncommonly well. What amuses me is to think of Lestrade, who had started off upon the wrong scent. I am afraid he won't make much of. Why, by Jove, here's the very man himself. It was indeed Lestrade, who had ascended the stairs while we were talking, and who had now entered the room. The assurance, the jauntiness which generally marked his demeanour and dress, were however wanting. His face was disturbed and troubled, while his clothes were disarranged and untidy. He had evidently come with the intention of consulting with Sherlock Holmes, for on perceiving his colleague he appeared to be embarrassed and put out. He stood in the centre of the room, fumbling nervously with his hat, and uncertain what to do. "'This is a most extraordinary case,' he said, at last, "'a most incomprehensible affair.' "'Ah, you find it so, Mr. Lestrade,' cried Gregson triumphantly. "'I thought you would come to that conclusion. "'Have you managed to find the secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson?' "'The secretary, Mr. Joseph Stangerson,' said Lestrade gravely, "'was murdered at Halliday's private hotel about six o'clock this morning.' There we go. That was chapter six of A Study in Scarlet. Thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing with a friend, or even leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. But for now, have a wonderful evening, get some very well-deserved rest, and see you tomorrow for the continuation of our story. <laughs>